Thank you, thank you, thank you. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. I introduced y'all last night to Bud and EJ. If you were not here, Bud and EJ were two old bachelor brothers I came across a number of years ago. That uh, lived in the same little white frame house that they were raised in. They were two old bachelor brothers. They were kind of special. And their church, it made it a real personal ministry to look after these two elderly men. And uh, Bud did all the talking. He was the oldest. Had a real shrill voice, and he called everybody fool. Didn't mean anything by it, but that's just a habit he had. And uh, EJ, his brother, hardly ever said a word. Well, somebody got in their minds that Bud and EJ were not capable of living by themselves. And back in the day of George Wallace, how I many of y'all remember that name? Wallace, one of the things he did when he was governor of the state of Alabama, he put a social service center in every county seat town. And so somebody reported old Bud and EJ down to the social service center. And they sent this little old sheriff's deputy out there with a subpoena-type document, told Bud and EJ they had to report down to the social service center on such and such a date to be checked for reason and rationale. Well, the day came, that little deputy showed up and put him in the squad car and took him off down there. Well, they took old Bud back first. He sat down across the desk, met a little old social psychiatrist, and he started his spiel. He said, you know, uh, Bud, somebody has reported to us that they don't think you and EJ are capable of living by yourselves anymore, and i got to test you for reason and rationale and make a determination. To which Bud resp- responded, go ahead, fool, I'm waiting on you. I've been ready for you for a while. I've been looking forward to this. You go ahead and you ask me anything you want to ask me. I'll name, I'll, I'll, I'll handle you. And he kind of sat back in his chair and said, Now, sir, listen here. This is serious stuff. You need to take it seriously. I'm taking it seriously. I can do anything you want. Go ahead, fool. He said, All right. He said, uh, Bud, what happened to you if I stuck my finger in your right eye? Well, doctor, you fool figure that out. You stick your finger in my right eye, I'd be half blind. He wrote it down. He looked at Bud. He said, uh, Bud, what happened? I stick my finger in your left eye. He said, Well, Doc, anybody figure it out? You ought to put my right eye out. Now you put my left eye out. I'd be totally blind. I can't see a thing. He wrote it down. He looked at me. He said, Bud, look, anybody can take that scenario and figure that out that, 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 that quickly. I don't have any problem with your abilities. Go out there and send your brother in. Well, you know what he did. He went out there and got EJ over in the corner and said, Listen here. He's going to ask you to stick his finger in your right eye. Tell him half blind, left eye, totally blind. We go to the house. E.J. said, all right. He went back here and sat down. little old psychiatrist gave him the spiel. Now, I need to check you for reason right now. Are you ready? He said, all right. He said, um, E.J., what happened to you if I cut your right ear off? He said, well, Doc, I'd be half blind. He wrote that down. <laughs> he looked at many he said, now, E.J., you, now, look, this is serious stuff. You need to really think about your answers. They count. He said, all right. He said, next question, what happened if I cut your left ear off? Why, well, Doc, I'd be totally blind. He wrote that down. He looked at it a minute and analyzed it. He looked at E.J. said, E.J., he said, I got a little problem. He said, but before I make any determination here, I need to give you an opportunity in your own words to explain to me why you think it is if I cut your right ear off, you'll be half blind, 
and I cut your left ear off, you'd be totally blind. E.J. said, why, Doc, the way I figure it is, you cut my right eye off, my hat's going to fall down over my right eye. You cut my left ear off and fall down over my left eye, I can't see a thing. He said, go to the house. I don't always understand the reason and rationale why God has us in a certain place at a certain time, but I believe this is a certain place at a certain time, and we're here for a purpose tonight, and I'm looking forward to see what God's going to do. Now, everybody has a card. You don't have a card, you need a card. Here's what I need you to do with that card. I need you to just put it aside. I'll tell you later in the service what I want you to do with it. It's really important. It's like the psychiatrist told EJ. It's really important. Importance. So just hang on, and we'll see what we're going to do with it in a little while. When Barbara died, of course, I told you it changed my life, but it changed my life even before she died. She and I had lived all over the place, pastoring churches, and um, we had never decided where we wanted to be buried. And... Um, Toughest day of my life, I guess, one of the, if not the toughest, one of the toughest, was when we sat in her oncologist's office and she looked at Barbara and told her there's nothing else we can do. I had a few things in my life taking my breath away, but that took my breath. I, I didn't even know how to respond to that. Finally, she got enough wits about her that she said well how long do I have and she said weeks I got her out of the office down into my truck and we started home I still could not speak about halfway home I pulled up and stopped at a red light tears just rolling down both our faces and I turned to her and I said honey my timing's a pit's but we've never even talked about really where we're going to be buried. And I need to know. She was such a dynamic Christian. Brother Rick and Janice knew her well. Honey, wherever you decide is fine with me. No, I want you to be happy. Do you have any place in mind? I said, yeah, yeah. Shortly after I became director of missions here, I went to a funeral out at Maple Grove Cemetery in Alexandria, and I... I just thought it was one of the most tranquil settings I've ever been in. And, and I'd like to at least look at there. She said, well, take me home, let me rest, and maybe tomorrow we can go look. And we did. And I'd always told her, now, we didn't know where we are going to be buried, but I'd always told her, I said, now, I want an upright tombstone. Now, I don't have any problem. If you have one or loved ones who have one that's flat on the ground, that's fine. But I wanted an upright one. I wanted it to be visible. Because I wanted to leave a message even in death. And I told her that all of our marriage. And so I found a place out there I liked and I cared her and I showed it to her and she liked it. And I went out and I, I made the transaction and I bought it. It's on the back road up on the hill in Maple Grove Cemetery and it's right next to the street going this way. And we have an upright tombstone. And since that time I bought the other plot for Pam when... When she goes to heaven, it'd be her place too. And 
I, I said on my way out of the cemetery, I said, God, now what's the message you want me to put on our tombstone? And he gave it to me before I got out of the cemetery. So if you drive by out there, you'll see the Nichols tombstone and carved on it are these words. Gone home, y'all come. I just thought that said it all. Because you see, heaven is truly our home. You know, we, we, we call places here on earth our home, but our true home is heaven. We're here but for a season. But my eternal home, like those children over there tonight, once they prayed to receive Christ, their eternal home became heaven. Heaven. There's a lot of good things you can say about heaven. I, I don't know of a subject I'd rather preach on than the subject of heaven. Now, there's not a lot in the Bible about heaven. In fact, the longest passage we have is found in Revelation 21 down through 22 in verse 5. And we'll draw our text from there tonight. For our purposes, we're going to look at the first eight verses. So if you'll let your eyes fall upon there. We'll look beginning in verse 21. John the Revelator says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. If you don't have verse 4 marked in your Bible, you ought to mark it. It's a verse of help and hope. It's one of those verses... When I'm having a tough time and I need to be encouraged, I go to because it says, listen to this, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Hey, can you imagine that? <laughs> I got to tell y'all, y'all see me hobbling around. I got an ankle that's killing me. My back went out last week. I came up during the fellowship time the last three nights so I could sit over there because it's embarrassing me to drag up those steps in front of you. That's just me. I know you don't care, but it bothers me. But, but I, I've just got a lot of problems, and I'm old. Some mornings my body has a business meeting before I get out of bed. The knee makes a motion. Let's just lay here a couple more hours. And before I can tell it shut up, the ankle has seconded the motion. Everybody's discussing it. And finally, I just have to overrule my body. There's just pain. But can you imagine a place where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears? And then verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Right, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What a word. But the fearful and unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, and whoremongers, the sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, or lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And then one more verse, verse 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it heaven, Anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written 
in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven is our home. There, there are a lot of good things about home. You know, even though it's a temporary home, I'm to that point in my age, Pam and I are to that point in our age, if we leave home, if we go somewhere, about three or four days is all we want anymore. We're ready to get back home. We just like to come home. And, 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 and so heaven's our final home. What a wonderful place it's going to be. Now, I, I don't think there's any way in the world with any kind of skill, sanctified imagination, whatever you call it. I don't think there's any way in the world tonight I could even come close to describing to you how wonderful and glorious and beautiful heaven's going to be. I just don't think our earthly minds can comprehend how glorious it's going to be. Paul said that. Paul said, I hath not seen or ear or, or ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for those that love him. And so heaven is a, a wonderful place. Our best just won't compare. When I was pastor of the First Baptist Church of Red Bay, Alabama, my one outlet for years until I had the wreck several years ago was to play golf. I loved to play golf. It was the only thing I found that for three and a half or four hours I could kind of just forget about everything and get my mind off of stuff and it was my one time a week I tried to play once a week it was my outlet and uh, when I moved to Red Bay I, I, I found a problem because you see it, as much as I love golf I hated playing by myself I always liked to play with, and in fact the main reason I played was for fellowship I usually found me some preachers and we get us a little group and we enjoyed having fellowship with each other together playing golf well, there were no preachers in the whole county that played golf. I was all alone. I lived on a beautiful golf course. I lived on the 17th fairway of a beautiful golf course. And um, I, I couldn't find anybody in the church that played. I couldn't find any preachers that played. And so I started on Thursdays playing by myself some, and there were four old reprobate, hard-shell lost guys, older men that played every Thursday. And they invited me to play with them. And so I did. And it didn't take me but about a week and a half to figure out God had put me in a mission field. He had planted me with those men to be a witness to them. And so I started witnessing to them and working with them. And it got to the point that every Thursday before we played golf, they'd get there an hour early and drink coffee and talk about everything they ever wanted to grill that young preacher about. And then when I'd show up, they grilled me. I mean, we had some discussions. So this Thursday, I walked in, and one of them said, Come on over here, preacher. I got something I want to ask you. I said, I figured you did. <laughs> I went over and sat down. He said, Now, if, and this was the big qualifier at that time, if we get to heaven, that's a big qualifier. By the way, I won two of them to Christ. Two of them so hard-hearted they never would, but two of them came to Christ. But at that time, none of them were saved. If we get to heaven, what are we going to have to eat up there? Now, you can't answer that. I said, yes, I can. All right, take your best shot. I said, all right. What's your best thing to eat here on earth? What do you like best of all? One of them said, well, I like prime rib. That's good. One of them said, well, I like, I like shrimp. One of them said... I like this or I like that. They all had their answers. I said, boys, and I'm going to hurt you real bad right here if you didn't eat supper. 
I said, let me tell you what my favorite meal is. I was raised in Chilton County on a farm. My favorite meal is that first mess of fresh peas right out of the garden. Boiled up. Doctor don't like this, but with a little fat back in them. And, and, and I like to throw a few pods of okra in my peas. Some people don't like it. I like that. Then you take the rest of that okra and you cut it up and you batter it. And, and my mama and my grandmama had a way of cooking it somehow in a skillet in the oven. And it, oh man, you talk about it. Mm. And then take some of that corn and you cut it off the cob and they could cook that. And then yellow crookneck squash cut up and steamed with onions and a pone of cornbread and a fresh Alabama tomato and a jug of sweet tea. I'm telling you, that's so good. You have to wear a cap to eat it. If you don't, your tongue will beat your brains out. It's so good. I'm just telling you, it's good stuff. Well, I told them all that, and I said, Now, boys, let's take your best and my best, let's roll it all up together and multiply it a hundred times. No, let's multiply it a thousand times, and it still won't be as good as we're going to have in heaven. And you know what satisfied those old boys? They were fine with that. They got up and started out, and I started out, and this little lady ran the clubhouse there. She stepped around the corner. She said, preacher, preacher, get over here right now, right over here, right now, right now, right here. I sensed urgency in her voice, so I moved over. She got that business finger going right up my face. She said, young man, I heard you talking to them old men. I know I'm not supposed to eavesdrop, but I was listening to you the whole time. I'm going to tell you something, preacher. There ain't going to be no stinking squash up in heaven. I'm here to tell you. ain't going to be no stinking squash up in heaven. I said, ma'am, I don't know whether it be squashed or not. My point is, your best, my best, their best, all our best rolled up together, multiplied a thousand times, still won't be as good as what heaven's going to be like. And she said, okay, I understand. So I went on out and played golf. But, but I, you see, I, I realize that our opinion of the best and your opinion of the best, all our opinions of the best, still can't even come close to what heaven's going to be like. You see, the truth is, heaven's going to be better than all our best rolled up together. Heaven is a place. It's a place. Now, now there are a lot of places on this earth that are beautiful, breathtaking places. The Smoky Mountains. Uh, I, some of you have been to Hawaii, and I've seen pictures of how beautiful it is. Pam and I had the opportunity to go on Alaska cruise a few years ago. Never seen anything more beautiful in my life than that place up there. Beauty is everywhere on the earth, but i got to tell you, there's nothing on this earth that's going to be close, close to what heaven's going to be like. And so I want us tonight, if you will, to just take what John has told us here in Revelation, and I want us to see heaven as I think John saw heaven. I want to say three things about it. First of all, John says that heaven is a real place. John says there in the scripture, and I saw, I saw heaven. What does that mean? That means that John really saw heaven. God lifted him up and literally, I believe, let him see this place called heaven. You don't see something it isn't. When you see it, you talk about it. You have an image of it. And he put in the word of God an image for us to get a glimpse of what this wonderful place called heaven's going to be like. John saw something real. It was not a vision. He's not dreaming a dream. He says, I saw a real heaven, a real heaven. And I want you to know tonight that heaven is a real place. 
It's not the figment of somebody's sentimental imagination. It's not pie in the sky by and by. Heaven is a real place. It was made by God himself. Twice in Revelation 21, once in verse 2 and again in verse 10, we see the expression. John says, I saw it coming down from God out of heaven. And that confirms for me that heaven is a product of the handiwork of God. The Apostle Paul further confirms that when he said in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, For we know that if our earthly house, the tabernacle, were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What does that mean? That means that no human architect has had anything to do with the development and the building and creation of this place called heaven. It is a place that God made himself. But I further know that it's a real place, not only because John said it's real, but because Jesus said it was real. My favorite passage in all the Bible is John chapter 14. You know the passage. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. These verses are a commentary of the Lord Jesus Christ about this wonderful place called heaven. Look at verse 5 in our text. It says, and he that sat upon the throne. Why, that's Jesus. Look at what it says. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. In verse 6, he identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega. He says he was here before anything was, and he'll be here when everything else is gone. He will always be with us. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He's the faithful and true one. He's the just one. He cannot, he will not, he has not lied to us, and he never will. And Jesus tells us that heaven is real. So if Jesus says it and John tells us it's real, then it's a real place. I believe heaven is real. The second thing that John tells us is not only that heaven is a real place, but he tells us that it's a new place. He says, and I saw a new heaven in verse 1. A new heaven and a new earth. In verse 2 he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. In verse 5, and he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Heaven is a new place. Now that's not a reference to time. It is a reference to the freshness and eternal newness of heaven. Quality. Heaven's nothing but quality. A quality we don't even know about. So let's explore that for a few minutes. Are you aware that everything in earth gets old? Everything gets old. And you know, I, I like new things. How many of you like new things? I like to go to the store and buy something new, take it home, take it out of the box. I, I like that. I like new stuff. I, I, I've never had but one or two new cars in my life, but I like to smell the inside of a new car. So when I go to the car wash to get my old car wash, I tell them, put that new car smell in there. I like to smell I like I like to look at new houses. I, I'm like you. I like new clothes. I just like new things. There's something exciting about new things, but everything we have 
grows old. My ties. You know, sometimes uh, people don't wear ties like it used to. I still, I still have a problem preaching without a tie on. And, and goodness knows I've got about five or six racks of them. I've got plenty of ties. But some Sunday I go in there getting ready to preach and I go looking at all my ties and I think, man, I'd like to have a new tie. <laughs> you know? I, but don't, don't look at me so spiritual. Because I guarantee you, some of you ladies went to your closet last Sunday morning get ready to go to church and it was like this. I know I, I, I married one. I wish I had something new. I wish I had a new dress or something to wear. Now, you old boys, you'll pull a wrinkled shirt out of a hamper and wear it. I know you. <laughs> Those women like something new. Our clothes get old. Y'all remember leisure suits? Yeah. If you had a leisure suit, you were a dude. If you had sideburns and leisure suit, you were a dude. You know? Nobody wears leisure suits anymore. Why? Because they're old. If we had church buses out here tonight, we could load up and we could go to places in Anniston or Oxford where 50 years ago those subdivisions were the shiniest, brightest, most state-of-the-art, prettiest new homes you've ever seen. But now you drive through there and some of them need a roof and some of them need porches repaired and some of them need landscaping. Most of them need some paint or some kind of facelift. Why? Because they've gotten old. They were one day brand new, but now they're old. You can go over here south of town, drive down the highway down there, and there's a junkyard off to the right. There's probably a thousand old cars out there. Some of them bent up, some of them stripped down, some of them rusted down, some of them squashed down. But one day, every one of them were driven brand new off a showroom floor somewhere. What happened to them? They got old. Not only do our cities get old and our houses get old and our cars get old and our clothes get old, I hate to break it to you, people get old also. If you don't believe me, look at the person sitting next to you tonight. Chances are they're about to fall apart. Our bodies just get old. We get old. Our hair turns white or loose. We get age spots on our hands. Our shoulders get stooped over. We can't run as fast as we once could run. Can't see as far as we once could see. I heard about two little old boys attending a birthday party for a lady who turned 100 years old. One of them said to her, Ma'am, I reckon your age you've seen about everything. She said, No, sonny. Usually before I found my glasses, it was already over with. <laughs> can't chew as good as we once could chew. One little boy said to his granddaddy, he said, Granddaddy, were you on the ark with Noah? He said, no, son, I wasn't on the ark. He said, then why didn't you drown? <laughs> Can't lift as much as once could lift. One lady said to her doctor, Doctor, is there a way to know when to put somebody in an in a old people's home? Why, Suge, there sure is. There's a test for that. She said, what is it? He said, well, you fill a bathtub full of water. You give them a choice between a teaspoon, a teacup, or a bucket, and tell them to empty it. She said, oh, I see. 
if they're normal, they'll use the bucket so they can do it quicker. He said, no, if they're normal, they just unplug the tub. You want a bed by or next to the window? Same lady went down here to the mall shopping. She came out and got in a car and called 911. Police said, what do you need? She said, somebody stole my car, part of my car. They said, why? She said, the steering wheel's missing, accelerator's missing, the brakes pad's missing, even the radio's missing. They got over there, and she's in the back seat. <laughs> why does all that happen? It's because we just get old. We just get old. I, I heard about one old boy who said, I can live with my arthritis. My dentures fit me fine. I can see with my bifocals, but I sure do miss my mind. <laughs> you can slice it. You can di- dice it any way you want to. You can dress it up. You can color it up. You can spruce it up. Bottom line is, this world and everything in this world just gets old. But the thing John tells us here is that when he comes to heaven, everything in heaven is always new. It's always new. It's the eternal new. Nothing there ever gets old. Nothing there ever wears out. Nothing there ever rusts out. Everything's always new. What a place heaven must be. John says three things. It's a real place. It's a new place. But then thirdly, He says it's a happy place. Now, this this is a fascinating concept to me. When I I was studying this passage a few years ago, I couldn't get past that last statement in verse 1. When when I'm reading about all this beauty and all of this stuff about what heaven can be, there was a statement there that says there will be no more sea. I, I couldn't wrap my mind around what that meant. So I did what I was taught to do in school. They taught us in school, when you don't understand something, go look it up at other places in the book and see how it's used. So I did. I, I went back to study C in the book of Revelation. I found out that in Revelation 13 and verse 1, the Bible tells us that the Antichrist, the beast, arose out of the sea. So in the book of Revelation, the word sea responds or speaks of a place out of which satanic beings arise. And then the chapter just prior to our text in chapter 20 And verse 13, John says, The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And so the sea speaks of a place of death. It's a place of satanic origin, but it's also a place of death. And maybe that's what John had in mind when he said, And there will be no more sea. Maybe he's telling us that there will be no more antichrist rising. Maybe he's telling us there will be no more fear of death. There will be no longer a threat of death or terror of death. And he may have been saying those things. Could have been either one of them. But the more I studied on it, the more I prayed on it, and the more I thought about it, the more I came to believe that John had a far more practical meaning when he penned those words, and there'll be no more sea. Think about it. Think about where John is. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. Patmos is a small island in the middle of the GNC. It's 10 miles long, 6 miles wide. John had been condemned for preaching Christ and they had put him out there on that island all by himself. He had no way to get back to the mainland. He was there. He was exiled. He was all alone. There was nobody there but John and God. 
John could walk to the very northern part of that island looking. All he could see was sea. He could traverse 10 miles to the south and look, and all he could see was sea. He could go to the eastern shore, and all he could see was sea. Go six miles to the western shore. All he could see was sea. He was surrounded by the sea. He was cut off from the world by that sea. He had people across that sea. We don't know all of them. He had family across the sea. He had friends across the sea. He had people that loved him and that he loved across that sea. He was no different from you and me. He loved people. He loved being around people. He was a fellowshipping man of God. He liked folks. He loved sharing Jesus with folks. He liked preaching to folks. He liked eating with folks and fellowshipping with folks. But because he'd been found guilty of preaching Christ, he was now exiled to the island every day, every minute of every day, every hour of every day, all day long, all he could see was the sea. It surrounded him. It kept him from those he loved. Oh, maybe he desired across that sea. Maybe he desired, I want to see perhaps his mom or his dad. Maybe he had siblings that were still alive. Every day he longed in his heart to see somebody, those Christians he had led to faith in Christ, those churches he had served in, those people he had talked to, those fellowshipping moments, those personal encounters. He longed to shake somebody's hand, to hug somebody's neck, to, to just hear a voice. But that sea... That sea, that sea, it cut him off from all of that. And so, when John says there was no more sea, he may have been referring to an antichrist. Maybe he's referring to a place of death. I, I don't know for sure, but most of all, I think John's saying, I, I think he said it's a new place, it's a, it's a real place. But I believe what he's saying in that one little statement, heaven's going to be a happy place because there's no more separation. There he is. Finally, he's overcome that sea. He's over on the other side. Maybe the old songwriter had it right. No, I know he had it right when he wrote Glad Reunion Day. Oh, can you imagine can you imagine what heaven's going to be like? I know when my daughter got saved, I have a boy and a girl. My son's a, a doctor in Mobile, and my daughter teaches school at Jacksonville State. And uh, they were little, and Barbara and I prayed for her salvation. I never will forget. My son got saved, and I never will forget when my little girl walked down the aisle and gave me her hand and said, Daddy, I want to get saved. And she got saved. And, and you, you know, there was a satisfaction that came to me. You know why? Because my family circle was complete. I knew in that moment that one day all of my family going to be with me in glory. Pam's saved. She's going to be there. I wish all my family was saved. Some of them aren't. You're the same way. We all have family members who aren't. But there's something warm about knowing my children are going to be with me in heaven. Ruth Anna Metzger was a professional singer. 
She lived in California and performed out there. One of the wealthiest men on the West Coast had a son who was to be married, and they had told him, don't spare any expense. Whatever you want, we'll pay for it. So they planned one of the most elaborate weddings that anybody had ever seen on the West Coast. The reception was to be in the towers in Seattle, one of the most affluent buildings in all the world. It was to be held on the top floor of the Seattle Tower. They were going to have everything there. And they hired Ruth Anna to sing at the wedding. Now, she received an invitation to the reception. And boy, she and Roy, her husband, were really looking forward to this because they'd never been to a shindig quite this fancy. So she sang, and she and Roy made their way over to the towers to attend the reception. There was a long line out there waiting, and they were waiting on the wedding party to arrive, and they finally came. There was a brass staircase ascending up to the top floor, and a ribbon, they cut the ribbon, and the bride and the groom ascended up with the bridal company and the, the friends and associates, all who had been invited to follow. And as they began to enter the building, there was a maitre d' there at the door, and he had a leather-bound book. And when each person came in, he'd ask them their name. And they'd give their name, and he'd look in the book. If their name was in the book, he'd say, enter in. And they'd go on up for the reception. Roy and Ruth Anna were getting closer now. They could see, man, there were waiters in tuxedos serving all kind of delicacies. They could see shrimp. They could see lobsters. They could see ice sculptures. They saw a orchestra all dressed in white tuxedos, the most beautiful music they've ever heard. They're so excited about getting in and being a part of this. And they step up, and the maitre d' said, Your name, please? He said, Ruth Anna and Roy Metzger. And he looked in his book, and he said, uh, Would you mind spelling that? She spelled it. And he said, uh, Ma'am, I'm sorry, but your name is not in the book. You cannot enter. She said, Oh, excuse me, you don't understand I sang at the wedding. I'm part of the, I'm part of the wedding party. He said, no, ma'am. My instructions are specific. If your name is not in this book, I'm not to allow you in. I'm sorry. And he called another waiter and said, would you escort this couple to the parking garage? So they turned. They walked down through there looking back at all that fine reception that they wanted to be a part of. They got to the elevator. and They pushed the button for the parking deck they stepped out of the elevator found their car and got in and started driving away they'd not gone very far Roy looked over at Ruth Anna and said honey what happened and she said uh, I know what happened they sent me a reservation with the RSVP card and I just assumed because I was part of the wedding party, I did not have to make a reservation. So I didn't do it. And then she just broke out boo-hooing. And Roy said, well, honey, it's not the end of the world. She said, I know. But, Roy, I just thought, I just thought how many people one day are going to step up and the Lord's going to open the Lamb's book of life and he's going to look in there and say, sorry, 
your name's not in here. You didn't make a reservation. Lord, how many people are going to do that? You see, the point is, she thought because she sang at the wedding, she was automatically in. But these pews in this church and every church are full of people who think, well, just because I taught a Sunday school class, or I was a faithful attender, or I sang in the choir, or I worked with that boys group, or whatever it was, I'm going to get in heaven. Look at verse 27 one more time. Look at it. You see it? There shall no wise enter into it anything that fileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. But they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So my question to you tonight is this. Do you know that you know your name is written down? You've made your reservation. If you drew your last breath in the next hour, in the state you're in right now, are you absolutely sure you know when you stand before Jesus, he's going to say, welcome, because your name is in the book. Here's the invitation. Everybody take your card. If you don't have a pen or a pencil, that's fine. We've got pencils up here on either one of these banisters. But the invitation is this tonight. If you know that you know your name's written down, I want you to put your name on that card and I want you to bring it up here and place it on this altar. Now here's the other thing. If you can't write your name on a card tonight, your pastor's going to be right here. You need to make an immediate beeline to him and say, Pastor, I can't write my name on this card. And I need to know my name is in the book of life. You say, now, Brother Sid, does that work? I preached this sermon at Billy Wayne's church. Y'all all know Billy Wayne. I preached this sermon in his church. And we had nine people line up immediately, line up in front of him. One of them was a man in his 70s who said he'd been called to preach. But he realized that night he didn't have his name in the book. He had to get in the book. Had another lady... Been teaching Sunday school 34 years. Said, my name is not in the book. I couldn't put my name on that card. I got to get it in the book. There was another lady standing in the back of the line. She was just like this. She couldn't wait on Billy Wayne. So she came up through all those people putting their cards down. Came up here to me. Said, I got to get saved right there in front of the church. I took the Bible and led her to Christ. If your name's not in the book, you need to get your name in the book tonight. And you know. You know whether or not your name's in the book. If it's not, do something about it. Father, I pray people will be honest, that they'll search their heart, and that for every lost person that's here, every lost person that's here tonight is here because they need to get saved. The reason I got this card in their hand is to remind them they're not saved. They need to get saved. Tonight's the time to be saved. They're here because they're supposed to get saved. So I pray that they'll come tonight and meet Jesus. Lord, I pray something happen in these next moments that will stir this church.
In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us. You bring your card and put it here on the altar.